Hello and welcome again to a new edition of the New Dominion Podcast. And as you can already tell, this is not Sean Kenny. Sean, um, and and no, I did not make Sean sick, but Sean is not feeling well tonight. Called me from Charlottesville about a half hour, 45 minutes ago and said, it ain't happening tonight. Um, but do me a favor, uh, have Megan sit in, but please don't offer my seat to her on a full-time basis. So uh, I am glad to say that Megan is sitting across from me as my co-host and partner in crime tonight. And uh, we'll, we'll have a debate about whether or not we uh, kick Sean off and bring Megan on later on. How about that? <laughs> Sean, I would never take your job. <laughs> I respect you too much. <laughs> How are you doing tonight, Marty? I'm doing well, Megan. How about yourself? How have things been in, uh, in Megan world this week? Good. Things have been good. Um, we finished the point in time count uh, last week at George Washington Regional Commission, the COC. So I'm really, it went really well um, and it was a big undertaking, but we're really happy with especially the turnout for volunteers. We had like 60 volunteers this year. It was really awesome. Um, and I think that's part of the experience is, you know, people, especially who haven't participated before, getting to engage and go out and talk to folks on the streets and see what the situation is and, you know, just hear people's stories. I think that's really impactful. So uh, we're really excited about that. And so now we're trying to recalibrate because it takes so much time, you know, but it's been a really, it's been good. Do you have, do you have some early numbers, some early observations on um, how things are relative to where they were last year or a few years ago? No, we're still entering all the data. So we do, um, uh, surveyors go out and they have paper forms and then we enter all that right and catalog everything and then we're still waiting on numbers from the school system and all that stuff too so um, it'll be a little bit before we get the report out but so we'll no breaking news me. on the new dominion podcast tonight. no no not tonight oh my goodness no. <laughs> well maybe next week we'll break a little bit of news on that front so Corey, how are things going on your world my man uh, things are going pretty well you know just hanging week? out yeah it's been a good week um you know you know getting used to the new I guess early season, you know, as a business owner, everything's just kind of all over the place. It's just really hard to get a grasp of what's going on because it seems like when we when we think think that we got it, something new happens. And we're like, no, no, it's it's not predictable yet <laughs> or ever. <laughs> you know, it's just what it's just how it is. It is what it is. So, well, we've had a we've had a really busy week at the advance. Uh, by the time people listen to this. Uh, they will have read a story that's coming out tomorrow at five o'clock. New information, more information about the growing circle of people in the Riverbend swim team controversy. It's going to be way more interesting. We now have the person who's raising the ruckus linked in to a couple of school board members and a former superintendent and an AD, and it's getting more and more interesting. Um, it's kind of like um, I'm starting to feel a little bit like I'm writing a Watergate story, right? It's just kind of like a slow drip. It's like every week, it's just another email, another text, it drip, 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 drip. And we're waiting for the big story, right? Um, and, and the big story isn't quite ready yet. It, it may take us a while to get to the big story, but, you know, it's been an interesting story to follow. And, um, um, you know, I think the the piece that Adele has written for tomorrow is is exceptional. It's everything that Adele does is exceptional. Uh, so we've got um you know we've got some good things going on there, and uh, I had a lot of fun this week, Megan. Good. I had a lot of fun last weekend. I um, traveled to North Carolina. Um, 
my uh, my son, who is um, who, uh, as, as everyone here knows by now, is in the Marine Corps and Special Forces, uh, was in a weightlifting competition. So I got to go watch him uh, move a lot of iron. It's fascinating to watch. He weighs like 168 pounds, and I watched him clean and jerk 351 pounds. That's impressive. It's mean, a lot of weight, let me tell you. And to watch someone that size uh, do that. And, uh, of course, he's uh, a member of Team USA, so he had his USA singlet on, which is really kind of cool to see. And um, uh, But to see him, you know, push that much weight and win the competition, win the outright competition, you had to do clean and jerk, and then you also have to do snatch. And I think he snatched like, oh, gosh, what was it, 270, 280? You know, so a snatch is just you just literally bring it off the ground over your head. Okay. Right? And uh, just just freaking amazing uh, to watch. And uh, he did a – just did a great job so we're you know really proud mom and dad and uh just had a great time going down there and watching him compete and uh, uh you know he's he's um he's now ranked based on that competition he's ranked number five in the country in his weight class and uh in december he's going to be competing for a spot on the u.s national team so yeah that's awesome I mean, we were talking a little bit offline you said that at some point he had like qualified for an olympic team is that correct so yeah, he was uh, he was actually in competition to to compete for a slot on the 24 team in Paris, and he had been training to that. But due to some things around his job, uh, he's not going to be able to do that this year. Uh, but but making the U.S. national team and hopefully competing uh, in the national championships in 25 will you know that'll be uh, just as good. Yeah, and we'll be wherever he is to watch him to watch him compete. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's an awful lot of fun. Uh, and then some other things uh, on the advance front this week you know we had a a lot of fun with city council and i wrote a piece on friday that's still getting talked about over at james monroe high school uh tim duffy who sits on council his room is literally right below mine and so every morning you know i walk by tim's tim's room and you know and tim always gives me his take uh, and tim's such a nice guy you know he never says anything bad but but um but you know tim uh, always giving me his take you know and and uh, uh we had a good conversation about that and and i've had a number of phone calls and emails and um you know so there's a lot going on in the city around issues of, of growth and uh, one of the people who called me was was our guest tonight so will mcintosh uh gave me a ring and we chatted a bit brought him on the brought him on the show will it's great to have you here man glad to have you tonight. Oh, thanks marty and, and thanks megan and Corey, for uh, for having me here well we're glad to have you here and so you know we'd like to just start off uh will just Tell us a little bit about yourself. We know you're you're a professor at UMW, teaching uh, obscure history to undergraduates who probably are being forced to take your class. They don't want to take it, but you know, there's these requirements for you. Got to take so many history classes. Um, uh, so tell us a little bit about yourself. Where you're from? Uh, kind of how you how you got to Fredericksburg? Yes, I should say that uh, my husband, when he encounters students out and about in the city, and then finds out that they're students who've taken my class, he always starts with "I'm sorry," um, which I don't know how I feel about that. But he always starts with. I'm sorry. Um, so I've uh, I've been in Fredericksburg since 2010, uh, and I came here to to take the job at Mary Washington, where I teach mostly 18th and 19th century U.S. history. Although I, I teach other things, um, other other areas of U.S. history, as I sort of follow my my interests. So yeah, moved here in 2010 from New York. Didn't know that Fredericksburg was a 
place where things had happened after December of 1862 as a 19th century <laughs> U.S. historian. Uh, it never occurred to me that it would be a place that I might live in the 21st century, but I got here and, you know, realized that it's it's actually an incredible place to live. So um, we have really put down roots in this community, built my career here at, at Mary Washington. Uh, my husband, Brian, started uh it is now known as Collage Spa, but it, for a long time was known as Skin Touch Therapy Spa um, that was uh, previously on Caroline Street and now on, on Charles Street. Um, and uh, in 2015, we were, uh, welcomed a daughter into our family and then another one in, in 2020. So we've, uh, we started a family here and, and have been raising kids. And our older one, at least, is a, now a student at, at Hugh Mercer, Go Patriots. Um, and, you know, I... I one of the things that we really loved about Fredericksburg, both of us, is that it uh, it's a community where you get a lot of opportunities to get involved in, and give back, if that's something that you're interested in. Certainly, the broader city community really welcomed us with open arms in, in, our, in our asking us to give back um, in our areas of interest. Um, and so I've just been getting more and more involved with uh, stuff around the city um, over the last six or seven years, um, which inspired me um, last year to uh, to run for city council. And so I ran for city council last year in 2023 um, and was elected to one of the at-large seats on city council last November. I took office a month ago tomorrow on January 2nd. Um, and I'm an at-large representative, which means, you know, I, I represent the whole city of Fredericksburg. So, you know, since we had a conversation uh, back uh, in the run-up to the elections when I was doing a series of pieces, uh, people who were running for office, and, you know, we had a chance to talk, and uh, you, you explained to me that in that piece for the why, you know, what motivated you and, you know, and why you were engaged. We talked about some of the issues and some of the challenges. And one of the fun things, uh, you know, Sean always likes to say when we bring guests on, we bring guests on who've won elections and we bring guests on who, you know, who have lost elections. And Sean is very fond of saying, you know, the, the, you know, the, the second best thing about running an election is, is losing one, right? Because you get up the next day, you don't have to make any phone calls from money. <laughs> you don't have to, you know, suck up to people that you don't like. You don't have to, you know, do all that kind of stuff, right? Um, but you got on the winning side, right? So, uh, so uh, you still have to call for money and talk <laughs> you don't like and, and all that kind of stuff. So tell me a little bit about what it's been like uh, a month in now. Uh, you know, as a politician, people love to talk the talk when they're running, right? And I can tell you, you know, having covered Washington for as many years as I did, you you interview all these people who are running for Congress, and then you go meet them after they've been in Congress for a month or two, and they're like, whoa, I wasn't expecting that. So, uh, you know, tell me a little bit about how the transition has gone from, you know, from being a candidate to the reality of actually kind of sitting on the dais and having to deal with the day-to-day -day issues. What's what's that been like? Well, let me just say, I think, um, you know, the analogy to, to Washington is is only a very loose one, right? If you're an elected... Well, that's, that's where I work. Yeah. Years, so that's the, one I've, that's the one I had to pull from. I was just going to say, you know, as an elected official in a city the size of Fredericksburg, you are, you know very much not insulated from constituents and that's that's what's great about it right that you know i see people out and about and um you know just in my daily life walking the dog and going to hyperion and um you know browsing the shops and and running on the canal path and i see people all the time so it's you know it's in some ways it feels to me more like a, a continuity with the campaign which was that for me the campaign was really just about meeting people right about um you know getting to better know 
the people that I know in the city already, and then getting to know scads and scads of new people, right? Um, uh, just going out and, and knocking doors and going to events and uh, being out and about in the city. And, and so far, I should say, you know, only a month into it, um, that feels like a continuity to me that that it's really about about people. It's about talking to them. It's about connecting with them. It's about building those those networks and communicating with them. Um, with the added benefit that now I get to sink my teeth into the part that is that's really intellectually interesting to me, which is the questions of of public policy. You know, when you when you campaign, um, you know, you're often talking in in kind of big picture terms about about what your your vision and your commitment um and and your sort of your moral principles as as a leader um but then you know if you actually make it up on the dais then then the hard work comes of translating those that vision and those principles and those sort of moral commitments into um you know concrete ideas for what we should change about the way the city is governed right you know it's interesting you talk about you know sort of the, the you know the moral component first and one of the things that you know i think that's that's a critical thing and actually Corey and i were having a conversation this afternoon we were talking about the moral side of things right Corey? And, absolutely you know i know that like with budgets when i'm you know when i'm writing about budgets you know um people can kind of get lost in the weeds of the budgets but my pers- my perspective on budgets has always been look at the end of the day a, a budget is a moral document Absolutely. right i mean the, the you know the budget you put forward isn't going to pass right i mean that that's a given right it's going to get worked over it's going to get changed stuff's going to be pulled out right but a budget is a moral document you are setting out your priorities knowing full good and well that in Stafford County, they're not going to get $63 million more for the schools. In Spotsylvania, they're not going to get $43 million more. You know that's not going to happen. But you're putting a moral stake in the ground. It's a visionary about where you're going to go, right? Uh, so talk to me a little bit more about that moral vision, where, you know, how the morality shapes that public mm-hmm. policy piece. So, I, I mean, and this is what I said throughout the campaign and you know still very much at the the forefront of my mind that for me the by far the most valuable thing about Fredericksburg as you know someone who i guess is is still sort of a relative newcomer you know having been here 13 and a half years i know in Fredericksburg's terms that can make you still a relative newcomer but what's really valuable about it to me is is the community is the people um and i particularly the thing i think is so valuable about this community is the way in which um you you know you you are able to build really uh diverse um and interesting social circles living here and that people you know people's paths cross in a real and meaningful way in the city in the city schools um, in the uh, in just out sort of you know broadly in the community, and so for me that that's the governing principle of uh, thinking about public policy, which is that how do we um, maintain and enhance that aspect of Fredericksburg? How do we make sure that we um, make room for new Fredericksburgers who want to come here? And how do we make sure that that doesn't come at the expense of the community that's here? That as we as we grow, as we, um, as we thrive, as we prosper, that that doesn't come at the expense of anybody who's here and that we make sure that we retain what to me is the most valuable part of Fredericksburg. 
Yeah, and I think also you've been involved in Fredericksburg like government activities for a long time too. Um, so I'd love for you to share some of that experience, your time on the EDA, kind of what, how did you kind of enter that space, especially moving here as a professor and working in the academic space. Um, I do think it's interesting, and we've observed this too, just being in Fredericksburg and being downtown. It is, to your point earlier, I think a community that does welcome that involvement and really encourages people to engage in a way that, you know, maybe larger localities or cities you don't really experience. So I guess, um, would you like, if you could share some of your experience about how did you start to take that step and how has that journey really informed the direction that you really want to go on council? Um, <laughs> I don't know. I'm having a hard time. Put, I have to put myself back into my mindset for, from from all those years ago, right? I mean, it, it came from really following following my my interests and my investments in in the city, right? You know, as a historian, it really really matters to me how Fredericksburg tells its story to itself, and the way that we do that, and, and making sure that we're doing that in a, in a complete and honest and whole kind of matter. And so that interest of mine sort of naturally led me into involvement, for example, with the Fredericksburg Area Museum, right, which I sit on the board of. Um, you know, being married to a small business owner and, and um, you know, as someone who, you know, one of the other things I love about this town is the really vibrant community of small businesses um, that exist in Fredericksburg. Um, you know, getting to participate sort of vicariously in that world through him and it wasn't my world but I was I was very much on the on the front lines with him as he was building that business you know that led me to, to the EDA right as you know how can we um, you know do what we can to preserve and support and build on what is I think um, a really unique entrepreneurial ecosystem in Fredericksburg um, you know I think there's relatively few towns our size that have such a vibrant um, small business scene and, and honestly uh, you guys I'm sure can probably speak to this better than I can right such a such a supportive and involved one right? yeah. yeah oh definitely yeah what do you see like those values that you've established over your time here as a part of your vision for what you want to do on council well you know, I think a lot of it is about, for me, the real priorities are doing what we can to manage the ever skyrocketing cost of living, right? I think to me that that is the biggest threat that we face as a community is that um, is that uh, if, if our sort of property values, rents, um, you know, cost of living continues to, to go up. Uh, in the double-digit annual percentages that it has been going up, that to me is the biggest threat to the community that that makes Fredericksburg valuable. So, you know, that is, I think, a challenge that we at the city can do something about. Uh, you know, part of the problem is that we're at the mercy of of national and regional forces. Right? It, we are a desirable place to live, forty-five miles outside of. Uh, Washington, D.C., a, a booming metropolis. And there are national trends around decreasing housing access and, and decreasing affordability. So to a certain extent, we are, we are at the mercy of those, of those national and regional trends. But I do still think there are things that we can do on the local level. Um, and I think we should, right? Are we going to solve the problem? I don't know, right? Because the powers of uh, city council are, are ultimately pretty limited, but I think we absolutely should do what we can to fix it. Um, and secondarily, right, I think it's really about investing in, in um, education, right, supporting the city schools, making sure that as that 
prosperity, that growth comes here, that it's our kids that get to take advantage of that. I don't want that growth and that prosperity to come at the expense of our kids. I want our kids to be the beneficiaries of it. So that means making sure that we're building um, on the city schools, you know, good um, in down payment that they've already made on career and technical education um, and that kind of thing, right? Developing, deepening our partnerships with Germana and with Mary Washington and with Mary Washington Healthcare and other institutions to make sure that we are creating an, an educational system in the city that is allowing our kids to take advantage of that. And then the third thing I would say, right, is that I'm very motivated by sort of an environmental vision of the future, right? Um, and this is something that I, I have real insights in as a historian, which is that, you know, the city of Fredericksburg was built in a time, at least the old parts of it, were built in a time when people lived what we would now describe as low-carbon lifestyles, right? I mean, they got around on foot or, you know, maybe on horse and horseback, right? Um, you know, and they didn't, they didn't burn fossil fuels being extracted from, from the earth on a, a daily basis the way we do now, right? And that strikes me as an enormous, enormous opportunity for us, right? That we have the, the bones, we have the infrastructure of, a, of the kind of low-carbon lifestyle that we're all going to have to be moving towards in the future. Um, and, you know, in, in a sense, we are we're an old place, but we're also really future pointing in that way. Um, in that we, we, like I said, we have that kind of urban skeleton that the, the structure of our city that is going to allow our residents to um, live, you know, more and more carbon light lifestyles. And I think that, you know, again, on, on a policy level, we need to be enabling people to live in ways in which they don't have to drive their car every day, right? So that means investing in things like like mixed-use paths, bike paths, um, you know, enhancing our, our bus system, the Fred bus, um, which, you know, there's some really interesting work going on in the city about that right now. Um, and about, you know, making sure that we're building houses in places where people don't have to drive everywhere. And I think that that is both a, you know, a, a lifestyle thing and also really an environmental thing. Uh, pick up on a couple things there. Um, so, you know, let, let's start with the environmental piece, right? Um, so, look, I, you know, I covered the automotive industry at U.S. News and World Report for seven years. I, I'm a big advocate of, uh, of, of quote-unquote, green cars. So the reality is, and I'm sure, you know, these cars are not as green as they <laughs> sure, yeah. need to be, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, the, 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 um, the ecological devastation being wreaked by mining the rare earth metals uh rare earth metals i've been tripping over my words all day long um the kids in my uh, sociology class are still laughing about something i did this morning and i'm not going to repeat it on the air um, <laughs> it's one of those days one of those days we were talking yeah. about it. it's been a long year it's been you a know. long year right. yeah. we're only into february um but um you know they, they're not nearly as as ecologically friendly as people want them people want to believe in them but you know the other side of this too is uh, the fact of the matter is, if every American were to have a electric car today, the energy grid could not sustain it. Right? We 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 you couldn't power them. We don't have enough energy. So you know what's interesting about this? You're right. It's, we're sort of at this interesting nexus in time, right? Um, and I like the word you used. Was it future pointing? Was that the expression that you used? Yeah. I actually kind of like that because you're right. I mean, I think there's you know for someone like me who loves cars and has driven a lot of really cool. Uh, electric cars and I gotta tell you right I, I mean I, I meet people and they're like well you know cars electric cars don't have any power I'm like baloney <laughs> right you know there is no other car in the world you drive that when when you put your foot on the accelerator 
you better be ready to go, baby, because you are going, right? There, there is no wind-up. There's no turbo wind None of that stuff. You are gone, right? And they're a lot of fun to drive. People who have talked about, we well, you know, well, in 10 years we're going to be self-driving. and it's all. I mean, no, we're not. We're not going to be there for a long, long time. Um, so it does give us a chance to kind of sit back and we can sort of see where the future is going and, and you know, we're going to get there. Are we going to get there in my lifetime? I'm 61. Probably not. Uh, will we get there in your lifetime? I'm not going to ask you how old you are. <laughs> but, uh, you know, you might see an inkling of it a little bit more than I might see it. Um, you know, so, you know, when you talk about future pointing, how do you sort of balance the excitement? And believe me, I get the excitement, especially around green cars. Right? I mean, I, I get it. I love, I love driving these things. But how do you kind of get around the excitement of what is possible and the reality of what you have to kind of meet? Well, I mean, I should say well, we got an EV a year ago, and and I couldn't agree more. It's, it's totally fun. And oh, they're they're great. Going from a clapped out old Prius to that was like going from, you know, sort of Fred Flintstone's car to the Jetstones rocket ship. It was it was yeah. amazing, right? But, um, you know, I I wish I could answer that question, <laughs> right? I mean, I. I have my own sort of personal thoughts on the matter, sure. right? Um, that's why we're here, right? No, and yeah, I. But I think, I, I think we will have a hard time in any of our lifetime here with the vast, with the majority of Americans living without a car. But what I think we should be aiming for is car light lifestyles, mm-hmm. by which I mean, right? People might have cars; they might have cars to run errands that involve carrying heavy things for your for your weekly grocery shopping um you would use them for for pleasure right um uh, for vacation and that kind of thing uh but that the kind of regular errands that you need to do to make your 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 daily life run you wouldn't need to use the car if you didn't want to and for me um you know in terms of what i can have influence over as a council member in fredericksburg it's you know i'm, I'm not going to be able to to fix you know higher microplastics in the ocean or whatever the problems are that come come with electric cars, at least, you know, not from Fredericksburg City Council. But what we can do is make sure that as the city grows, that it's growing in such a way to to enable those kinds of car light lifestyles, that we are building the infrastructure now so that 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the road, uh, the next generation of Fredericksburgers doesn't have to... Um, doesn't have to drive for, for their daily necessities if they don't want to. I think those are things that are really important. You know, when we're talking about, you know, future pointing, there is, uh, yeah, there's that concept of what is possible, but also making sure that we're putting things in place that make that optimal, futuristic, you know, situation feasible. And I think that, um, I think we still have some ways to go. I mean, the city has definitely gotten a lot more diverse. I mean, everyone sitting at this table is pretty much representative of that uh, of that diversity in a lot of different ways but i think i think we still have a little ways to go of getting everybody into the conversation i know there's a lot of talk right now about how that diversity should be you know density and all these other things we're talking about housing yeah as we have more people and as we have more diversity people need a place to live <laughs> so you know it's really interesting to um, you know, to, to be in this place where we are kind of like in this in between, right, where technology is taking us to a new place and we're 
we are pretty much like the test subjects of how these things are going to be implemented much later into the future. But I mean, to get back to the to the kind of the point of morality, um, there's always a lot of discussion. I watch a lot of different types of political commentary, and there's a big debate on whether morality should be in the forefront of how we do policy or should we not. I'm a believer that it definitely should be. <laughs> we need to be making sure that we're making policy in that in that in that case. So obviously to kind of swing us into like what the big conversation is right now, there's a lot of perceptions of what the city council is trying to accomplish versus how some some people uh, perceive it. I am definitely you know going to be very open that I think that a lot of the pushback is not intellectually honest in a lot of ways. But um, how how do you feel about um, how citizens are kind of taking that as you're trying to do the best that you can to, you know, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm going to assume that you're definitely doing the best, all that you can to get all the information, <laughs> yeah. making sure that you're well educated on this on the on the subjects. How do you feel that, you know, when you're when you're getting the kind of pushback that you were getting back on the 23rd? Like how, like how, how do you, how do you try to work through that as you're trying to lead the, uh, trying to be a part of the leadership that's trying to take us to that future? Well, this is something that I said in that, in that council meeting, um, which is that I think that sometimes these debates happen in the public using the highly technical language of zoning and city planning. And I think sometimes we do ourselves a real disservice when we when we get into fights about units per acre, right? Um, and you know, even the term density itself, right, is is a is a kind of technical term of art when you think about it. Um, and because what we're really talking about, to your point, is people where they live and and how we're going to make it possible for people to live and what kind of circumstances they're going to live in, right? Um, and that arriving at um, sort of uh, technical um, specifics like units per acre or as we did on Tuesday night, right? Thinking about ways in which we might do fractional units. Um, I should say last Tuesday night. Um, that that that's that's not that is a a technical translation of the overall goal. And so, a big part of how I see my role as an elected official is is sort of as a translator, right? Talking to people, figuring out what our vision, our shared vision is for the city of Fredericksburg, figuring out how that can be translated into the technical languages of ordinances. And statutes, and then the other way around, right? How we take the the technical language of ordinance and statute, um, and and communicate to the public, what is it we're actually talking about? What is it we're actually? What kind of changes are we going to see on on the city landscape? And I think, you know, um, Tuesday night represented a, a breakdown of that kind of communication. Um, so, you know, I'd love to take a moment to talk a little bit, if you don't mind, about. Um, you know, how I think about what we did on Tuesday night and, and why I think it, it in fact does uh, fit this vision of, of a kind of a Fredericksburg that that, um, retain, that grows and yet retains its community. Yeah, by all means, have at it. Yeah, please do. That's why you're here. <laughs> so what the, the main thrust of what we did on Tuesday night, it wasn't the only thing, right? There's, it was an ordinance that had several different pieces in it. But the piece that most people seem to be um, uh, reacting to was this notion of fractional density, which is to say, um, when we currently, when we do um, density calculations for new developments, right, in, in different areas are zoned for different density levels, two units per acre, four units per acre, up to, you know, 36 units per acre. Um, and the way that 
the rules had worked before is every unit counted as one, no matter how big or how small it was. So if you had a 450 square foot studio or a 3,000 square foot four bedroom townhouse, those both counted as a unit. Um, And so when developers build projects, that creates this obvious financial incentive for them to build big units rather than small units. Because if they're capped on the number of units they can build in a particular project, they want to make each of those units as big as they can within the confines of the space in order to get the maximum return on that. So it creates a real, I think, perverse incentive for um, people who are building new new properties, new new uh, buildings in Fredericksburg to kind of supersize them. And, and if you look around the city, I think you see the results of that, right? Which is that most of the stuff that is being built new is being built big. Um, and what we did on Tuesday night is we reformed the rules, at least in certain parts of the city, right? So in the downtown areas, um, in the creator maker districts, which are out along Princess Anne and up around... Um, sort of Jackson and Lafayette, um, as well as what are in what are called the planned development districts, which are mostly in the uh, more the newer, more outlying parts of the city. Um, what we did is we said, um, we didn't change the density, the density, we haven't changed any density, the density remains the same. But what we said is, if you have smaller units, you can count them as a part of a, of a unit. So if you have a, a studio bedroom that's under six, you know, apartment that's under 600 square feet, which means functionally a studio or a very, very small one bedroom, that that will count as half of a unit, half of the equivalent bigger unit. Um, and the reason we did that is that that then creates a different set of incentives for developers to build a broader array of different unit types. Um, so that any given project is then incentivized to have a mix of bigger units and smaller units. Um, We're not talking about, you know, that we had a presentation from staff where they ran these sort of hypothetical scenarios with some recent projects and what they might have looked like or what might have been possible with some recent projects had this um, reform been in place when they were built. And we're talking about small number changes in the numbers of units and even smaller changes in the number of people, right? If you assume a three-bedroom apartment is being inhabited by two or three or four people and a studio is being inhabited by one, right? We're not, we're, we're talking in practical terms, roughly the same number of people. We're just changing, uh, we're, we're giving people more flexibility about how they arrange the guts of the building in such a way that it provides a broader array of accommodations. And there's some value to that, right? People might want to live alone. Um, smaller units are naturally going to be cheaper than bigger units. Um, it might fit people in different life stages better, right? If we're trying to keep, you know, 20 somethings in the city, um, if we're trying to keep retirees in the city, stuff like that, right? So I think that that, to my mind, it was really kind of a technical fix to the way that we calculate density. And it was really a correction to a, what was previously, I think, a set of misaligned priorities in zoning law. And secondarily, I think it was a, a, a way of doing the zoning law that's just like fundamentally unfair, right? A 600 bedroom, 600 square foot studio or small one bedroom apartment just doesn't have the same impact on city services that a three or four bedroom house does. Like it, it stands to reason that it doesn't demand the same kinds of services for the city. So treating those the same for zoning purposes, it strikes me, that strikes me as unfair. And I think we kind of fixed that unfairness. Something that you uh, spoke to in the council meeting uh, that relates, I think, to what you're saying about this, you know, 
different construction and having a variety of options for people, something that you spoke to was that it's not about fixing affordability, that it's really about providing people choice. Could you talk a little bit about that piece of it? Yeah. Um, I, I, if I said that, it's not in- exactly what I intend, because I, I do actually think it's about affordability, but it's about affordability in a slightly counterintuitive way. Um, and if you guys will forgive me, I'm going to go a little bit into um, sort of urban history professor mode here. Yeah, <laughs> you know, no, go ahead. <laughs> um, I think, and this is something I heard from a lot of people. We're going to grade you, by the way. All right. Okay. Yeah. You, you do a student eval, right? <laughs> um, if, if it's anything like my my uh, real student evaluations, they'll mostly point out all of my verbal tics in an embar- in a very embarrassing way. But um, uh, I, what I heard from a lot of members of the community was um, both in that meeting and then and then outside that meeting is how can this be about affordability? Look at these new places that are being built. You know that that where the rents are not affordable, and pe- a lot of people were were uh, citing the website for Hanover House, which is that new build apartment building down on um, Hanover and Sophia, mm-hmm. um, and they were they were quoting the the rental rates from that building, um, which are admittedly not affordable, right? <laughs> um, I will say that project does have, I believe, four apartments set aside officially as affordable, and the people weren't talking about that, but that's fine, right? Their their point about the market rate appointment apartments is is valid, right? Those are not the market rate. Those apartments that are being rented at market rate are not affordable, but I think that misunderstands how affordable housing actually works, which is um, basically almost never in our history has new build construction been quote-unquote affordable right new it's expensive to build new buildings and so new buildings are almost always built for people with the money to afford higher-end housing and then what happens in a healthy housing market if you're continuing to build new buildings right is that as those buildings age they kind of work their way down the affordability ladder and you get what is called naturally occurring affordable housing which is building housing stock that's a little bit older right might be a little bit shabbier might be in a, a, a location that's like not the exact primo location right now right uh, but then becomes affordable right um, and so in order for the housing market to f- kind of function healthily you have to be bu- building that stuff even if that the the new stuff is not going to um, working people at the beginning what you're doing is that you're building housing for people who can afford it so that the people who can afford it don't push out the existing affordable housing and I think what you get in a what I would describe as a not healthy housing market, like we have here in Fredericksburg, is that um, is that if you aren't building enough new properties for people with the money to build them, they're taking those affordable properties, buying them up, and making them expensive. Right. So the what I like to say is, you know, if someone has a million dollars to spend on a house and wants to move to the city of Fredericksburg, we're not going to be able to stop them. Like, if you have a million dollars to buy a house, you're going to be able to figure out a way to do it, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and if we aren't building a million-dollar house for that person to buy, then they are going to buy the $400,000 house and blow out the back and put a gigantic addition on it and turn it into a million-dollar house, right? And then we've lost that $400,000 house. And then the person who would be shopping for the $400,000 house is going to do the same thing to the $200,000 house um, and, and on and on and on, right? So in this weird kind of counterintuitive way, in that case, right, building the, the million-dollar house is, in fact, a, an affordable housing strategy because it is creating, it is taking the pressure off of our existing supply of housing. 
thing, right? Um, if I might, right, I, can I talk about a couple of other examples around the country where we've seen some... We can, but yeah. before you do that, I, I just want to back up and get a little bit of clarification. Okay, I'm not an American historian. I studied dead medieval monks. <laughs> so, you know, uh, ask me about Clooney or, you know, something like that, and I can talk for days and days and days. I'm, I'm not an American historian. I don't even play one on TV, and I don't tend to be one at James Monroe High School where I teach... American things, history. <laughs> right? I don't teach American history. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, but, um, but when you, you know, you make the comment that there's never been a time in U.S. history where new build was affordable. I would say almost never. I was going to say, the first thing I think of is, uh, is what happened post-World War II. And that would be the exception that I would right? point I mean, to. Yes. So, I mean, I mean, clearly that housing was built to be affordable. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the house that I grew up in uh, for the first nine years I was alive was a, 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 you know, a post-World War II boom house on Shenandoah Avenue in Durham, North Carolina. House is still standing. Um and uh, sells for more money than my parents could probably imagine that it, you know that they paid for it. Um, so it's not that it, it never happens, right? It's, it's the anomaly. So you would call it an anomaly, sure. but it's, it's a heck of an anomaly because yeah. it ran for how long? I would 20, say 20, 25, 20, years. 25 years, right? But if you look at the rate of housing production since then. Oh, no, is, we've been in the tailspin yeah. ever since then, right? I mean, yeah. And that's what the JLARC report on housing a couple of years ago showed, that Virginia has been underbuilding housing for 40, 40 years now. Um, and I should say that matters for affordability because that housing that wasn't built 40 years ago is the housing that would be part of our affordable housing stock now. Right. Right. So that that long history of underbuilding, we are living on the tail end of that. And that matters because that house that was not built 40 years ago is now a house that is not available um, as part of the naturally occurring affordable housing supply now. Which points to the the complication with the the model you just gave, right? Uh, I think in theory, you're you're right, right? You you sort of build the places now and then down the road as they degrade a bit, right? They become more affordable as people move to more affordable places. But the reality is we have an affordability crisis right now now look i don't have a dog in this fight uh my job as a journalist is to talk to people and and hear what they say and so i'm hearing it from all directions okay um and and one of the things that i hear uh from people who especially within the alice community is like look we need help right now okay you know either we're going to get the help or we're going to be forced down the road right we're going to be forced down the carolina and that's going to have a deleterious effect on everything in the city, right? I mean, it's going to have it. I mean, we already see what it's doing to Stafford County. Uh, Corey, I believe you and Megan have talked about the difficulty of being able to have people who work in a place like this, who who can't afford to live within walking distance, within biking distance of where they live. So is is there a solution to that now? And how do we begin to, to ask that? Or how do we begin to, to deal with that? I think... You know, is there a short-term fix that is can be executed on the scale of the city of Fredericksburg with the budget that the city of Fredericksburg has? I, I think that's a tall order, right? Mm-hmm. I think there are things that we can explore. There are things we can talk about, right? Um, to take a, a good example, to take the example I brought up a moment ago of um, of Hanover, Hanover. Is it one Hanover or Hanover House? I I'm not sure. Right. Okay. Yeah. The the new building, right? That I where I mentioned that a few um, uh, apartments had been set aside specifically as for income limited, right? Basically, um, 
And that was because the, you know, the, the city provided some incentives to the developer in order to do that. Um, you know, I think that's a model we absolutely can pursue. And I think that it's a one that we can pursue um, in the, you know, I think that is something that is certainly on my agenda to think about in council, right? How do we build a set of incentive structures to have uh, people build consciously set aside affordable housing? I should say, in Virginia, we can't mandate that. There is a Supreme Court case from uh, a state Supreme Court case from uh, 1973 that says localities cannot mandate affordability. So we cannot pass a law that says any new building in Fredericksburg has to be 10% affordable. We can't do that. But what we can do is we can incentivize it, right? We will give you, you know, density bonuses. We will allow you to, um, you know, uh, sort of, we can work creatively with you on other parts of the zoning code in return for you offering us um, uh, affordability. So that is something that we should definitely be working towards. So the other thing that I'm here, oh, I'm sorry, Megan, go ahead. I was going to say the other thing that I'm hearing, of course, there is this concern about preserving the historic character of the city. And that means different things to different people. I mean, part of me, you know, I mean, quite honestly, you know, when when uh, they tore down the um, tore down the old Freelance Star building, uh, my former employer, and built the publisher hotel and, and that grand thing. Right. I mean, one of the. Man, one of the one of the most backlash I ever received on a column was when I wrote a column and said, you know, I mean, I heard a lot of complaints about it, but driving past it and kind of opening into it, I thought, I don't think this looks so bad. I think this looks kind of nice, actually. And I wrote that, and oh my God, I still get hate mail on that one from time to time, right? Uh, but like when they when they built the freelance store, but I, I went back one day when people were fussing with that. I went back and I dug up some in the old clip files but when they built the freelance star building replaced a car and, dealership oh my right? god you would have thought someone kicked the pope's dog right it was a car dealership previously right, right yeah right you know and so um you know uh, but i don't want, i don't want to compare a car dealership to what is right outside the building that we were sitting i mean look we're sitting in this beautiful room that was the slaves quarter um what 200 years ago 150 years ago Right, I mean, you can't replace that. Right, once that's gone, that's that's gone, and that's sort of the crux of the argument that this other side is making. So, can you help me understand? Um, you know, it's people get ginned up about this, and understandably, right? Um, help me understand how sort of how these things are going to play out in the historic district. Uh, what what does the impact look like? Because I I, I, th- I mean, look, I'm a smart guy, but I don't understand zoning. Okay, <laughs> I know a lot of things. Sure. I don't get zoning, and I have a heart. And I will. And I, and I wrote about this, right? I don't think council did a good job at all explaining this stuff to the public, right? Uh, again, I'm a smart guy. I can I can pick up a lot of things, but for me to read what was given to me and try to envision what this means ten years out. I mean, I'm sorry. I'm, call me dumb if you want, but I don't. I don't. I'm not able to do it. So help me. You know, sort of. I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you to be the mass communicator. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Right. And sort of help us sort of understand. Um, you know, where this where this change affects exactly, and what does it look like? Most important, what does it look like ten years from now? So I think I don't think anyone wants historic structures to be torn down and replaced, right? I don't think anyone is talking about um, replacing um, existing buildings that are contributing to their, to their, stru- to their uh, 
you know, to the streetscape, to the community, mm-hmm. right? I, I think that we can achieve, right, making our moral goal of making room for more Fredericksburgers, doing things like, you know, the publisher hotel and those, right, which were replacing weed choked parking lots and, uh, to your point, like an abandoned printing plant, which itself had replaced a car dealership, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I don't, I, I don't think anyone has an appetite. No one wants to see like our, our meaningfully important historic structures go away, right? Um, but I think that it's, I think there are lots of opportunities within, among, between them, as well as in outlying parts of the city to achieve those goals, right? Um, and the other thing that I would say, and this is, again, something that, that is constantly running through my mind as a historian, right, is that historically, these you know, lovely old historic buildings that we are sitting in right now would have housed a lot more people, right? That there's a lot, you know, that the, the sort of the fears of, of density, right, um, are in a way sort of ahistorical, right? And that the, the, the way much of the historic district is now, right, which is these buildings that are sometimes housing, you know, one or two people, a couple, maybe a small family, would have been housing multiple families, right? Or big extended families, or to your point, right, enslaved people, um, you know, living against their will um, in, a, in an addition or something in, in the rear. Um, and, and so, you know, the historic fa- fabric of the city is built for people, Right, so I think that that adding density to the downtown is in fact very much not a threat to the historic character of Fredericksburg. I think it's a restoration of the historic character of Fredericksburg, which is that the city would have been full of people. It would have been full of hustle and bustle, right? It would have been full of people living their lives, right? Um, and I don't think we any of us want to return to you know the material or social or political conditions of that time, right? But I think that this notion that the historic district is somehow full um, is 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 ahistorical. It's not what history was like, right? Um, so I think that we need to look for opportunities of growth that don't misplace, uh, that don't displace existing important historic structures, right? Um, but I think the good news is that there's a lot of those, right? Our, our more recent 20th century ancestors tore down a lot of things that probably shouldn't have been torn down, but that horse is out of the barn now, and we got plenty of uh, underused spaces that I think can be turned into houses for more people. And, and I, to, again, like I said, I don't think that that's a, a, a rejection of the historic community. I think it's a, I think that that is a, a re-embracing of what a historic Fredericksburg would have been like. Yeah, I think that it's, I think it's very um, disingenuous to believe that no one in city council like understands that when I'm watching public comments about that, like, this idea that just because we're adding for the sake of density, we're going to literally destroy Fredericksburg as we know it. It's just not a real phenomenon. It's just not a real thing, but people feel how they feel. Sometimes people have to say whatever they have to say to, to justify what they're saying. But I think that, um, you know, we're, like, the thing that, the thing that I think some of the, some of the opposition fails to recognize that the lives that they are trying to protect, there is a generation of people that try to stop what they are currently enjoying. Every society goes through this. We all go through situations where society is changing. We have a group of people that don't want that to change. We have to maintain that fabric, but society is going to do it regardless. And we are either going to do nothing or try to do something about it. And I just feel like that, that I feel like they're, it's like these are uh, no one's really learning 
from from the mistakes of the past when we are trying to like keep things where they are at some point something has to change but we all the community as a whole we love this place we love Fredericksburg and this building you know being a part of this building's history owning a business inside of it um we Megan and I feel very honored and yeah we would do everything that we could to protect this building but we also understand that there are opportunities around this building that could serve our community and move things going forward. So I think that one of the biggest, I think one of the biggest challenges that city council has is I do think there are some, if there is a critique and it's not even just about your council, but just city councils in general, I think there is a critique of how city councils ultimately communicate and getting more people into the room because uh, you can go back and watch many city council sessions around subjects like this. And it's the same residents, the same arguments over and over and over again. And I think I venture to say that this particular city council is probably one of the most diverse city councils in the history of Fredericksburg that I, that I can point to. And, but unfortunately when it comes to, when it comes to, um, public comment, the people in the room are nowhere near as diverse. And I think that city council has an issue about bringing many people to the table. So when you're looking out there, it shouldn't be dominated by one particular group of people. It should be a good mix of people in different class situations, races, things like that, to be able to speak on that. And I think that one of the biggest issues that we have going forward, you know, talking about that pointing to the future is getting people in the room and all these different levels that traditionally have not been a- have not been able to participate to get them to participate um, or create lanes for them to participate. So we are getting a broader um, conversation of what's happening, because regardless, like we can make we can make perceptions about maybe some of those people don't represent. They may or may not represent a majority of the opinions of our residents. But when we have council sessions where 98% of the people are against the resolution that's on the table, it doesn't look good. It doesn't look good for anyone, regardless of whether it's good for the country or not, right? Or good for our, good for our, uh, whether it's good for our, um, our community or not, right? It doesn't look very good. And, there's always been this dominance of a particular group of people that take up space and there has not been a lot of, um, there has not been a lot of energy in trying to galvanize people who are typically not in the room. So what are some things, uh, what are some things that you think that city council could do to improve the over, not just improve like the reach and the type of people that get to participate in these conversations, but also making sure that we're breaking de- that we're breaking down the legalese to a point to where where people understand can understand what they're taking in. It could be a sound plan, and like Megan and I, we are kind of law nerds. We like going into legalese and, and, and interpreting it. Not everyone wants to do that or knows how to do that. I think that's a particular type of skill set, and we can't expect you know average citizens to just be able to do that. So, what are some things that we can do to make that information more accessible? Because if it's not accessible, regardless of how sound the legalese is it's it's it, it's tantamount to ambiguous so how can we close that gap so more people feel like they can actually enter into the conversation 
feel like they're informed so they're not waffling with what could or could not be because if we can do that i think you guys will be more effective it's going to be a lot harder for people who have an agenda to sway people who do not have the time energy or skill set to break into this and, and go through all of this legislation in a, in a holistic way what are some things that you think you guys could do to improve on the overall communication and expand community engagement on issues just like this? Well, first of all, keep inviting me on this podcast. It would be my <laughs> number one piece of advice. <laughs> um, but no, I think you're, you're exactly right. And, and like I said a moment ago, I, all joking aside, I do think that that's an important part of my role, right? And I am, you know, I am new to this and I'm still you know, figuring out the, the proper venues and ways to do that, right? But I think that is exactly what my role is, 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 is communicating to people. Um, I, you know, I think we can do a better job of communicating in advance, right? But the, you know, the legalese is legalese for a reason. Laws have to be written in legalese in order to be effective. But you do need people, right? Like how I I see my role to say like, what this is what it actually means in your life. This is what it's going to mean for our city. Um, I, you know, I should say that um, the people you see speaking in front of council are not the only voices we hear in the community, right? Um, you know, my, my email inbox was on fire for the last couple of weeks, right? Um, and the voices that are being represented in my email inbox are a lot more diverse um, than, the, than the, the group of people who can come to a council meeting, right? Um, uh, one, one thing that's particularly striking to me is, is uh, as someone who has small children myself, right, that, that going out to a public event um, at 7.30 at night is, is a big ask of a co-parent, <laughs> right? You're asking a co-parent to do bedtime on their own. Um, and so unsurprisingly, you don't see a ton of people with young families. In, in events like that. Not none, but, but not a ton, right? Um, so when I look, you know, my email is going to be much, is full of a more, much wider array of voices um, than, than you necessarily see in person. Um, but I think that the point is absolutely well taken, right? That it's, it's about effectively communicating um, to the public what's coming down the pike, right? In terms that they can understand. Um, I think a lot of it is the work that you guys are doing here, um, with the advance, right? I mean, I think part of the reason we've ended up um, in the situation that we've been in in the last couple of years is is the obvious atrophying of the local news apparatus here in Fredericksburg, right? I mean, uh, sort of we can shout into the void all we want, but if there's no medium to convey that to people, right? Um, no, no sort of uh, news networks to convey that to people, then, then we're shouting in a void. Um, and I do have to say, I think it's also to a certain extent incumbent on citizens to organize themselves around um, issues that they care about. And, and I say this as someone who until a month ago was a citizen who didn't have a seat on the dais, who cared a lot about issues of community and affordability and stuff like that, and spent a lot of time talking to my fellow to my fellow citizens of Fredericksburg and being like, hey, this thing is coming up to city council. Can you make a comment if you support it, right? Um, and, and doing a lot of that uh, work, right? Um, and, you know, clearly my, my role has now changed, right? I mean, that, I don't think it's appropriate that I do that work anymore, and I, I don't do that work anymore. But um, I think, but that is work that citizens in the community need to pick up, right? There need to be people who are, you know, 
reading the advance, who are checking the city website, who are getting a sense, calling their council members and getting a sense of what's coming down the pike, um, and then communicating to their fellow citizens uh, and organizing themselves around around um, issues that matter to them, right? So I, I do think that it's a little bit of a, of a, of a two-way street. The city needs to better communicate in plain English what's coming down the pike. Um, and citizens need to, need to be prepared to organize themselves around issues they care about. So, you know, I do want to come back and talk about you know this group of citizens who who do, and they're they're there regularly, right? And like you said, there are reasons. Uh, look, and that's great. Yeah, I, I've lived in Fredericksburg for twenty, or in Pennsylvania, Fredericksburg, twenty three years, right? Um, the first fifteen, sixteen years I lived here, I couldn't tell you who was on council in Fredericksburg. I couldn't tell you who was on council. I couldn't tell you who represented me in Spotsylvania County. Why? Because I am leaving before the sun comes up and commuting to Washington, D.C., spending my entire day as a reporter in Washington, D.C., getting home at 9 o'clock at night and turning around and getting up at 4 o'clock next morning and doing it again. It's, I don't have time for it, right? And that is, I mean, that's what, 30 40% of our population does that, right? It's a lot of people who kind of live that reality. Um, but with the people who do come, right, um, you know, it's interesting. When I wrote a piece last year about ADUs, uh, I spent a lot of time in the College Heights area with some people who were not happy with the ADU ordinance. And when I wrote that piece, you know, I got lambasted from the other side <laughs> for that piece, right? Um, and, you know, what's what has sort of struck me through all of these arguments and all these things, right? Look, again, for the most part, I, I don't weigh in yes or no on these debates, right? My, my job, for the most part, is unless I see something that I just think is just flat out wrong then i'll get into a commentary and i will i'll call it out but that's not normally what i do even the piece i wrote friday right i even specifically said look i'm not taking a side in this fight right i don't i don't know enough to really call balls and strikes on it but it does strike me that like with some of these citizens who do come to this council meeting i spend a lot of time with a, a couple people in college heights and you and you go to their house and you you look at the money they've invested in those homes and you look at the things that are annoying them. And on one level, I might look at it and I kind of go, you know, it's the biggest problem I had in my life, you know, is that someone is shining a light into my three quarters of a million dollar home. You know, I'd count myself pretty blessed. But that's me who can't afford a $300 million or three quarters of a million dollar home who doesn't have to deal with it, right? Uh, so it's it becomes this issue of, I think, hearing one another. That's a lot of what this podcast is about, sort of learning to hear one another. And um, uh, so, you know, these are people who have made significant investments in their homes. Uh, they pay significant tax revenues. And if you, I was looking at the tax table, I mean, the taxes in the city are jumping rapidly every single year. And when you want a home that's valued at $700,000, that hurts. Okay. Uh, so, you know, I can understand where they're coming from. Whether I agree or disagree is rather kind of beside the point right i can understand where they are coming from i'll ask you the same question that i've asked other people around other sensitive topics how do we talk about this and turn down the heat and this may be right around this may be piggybacking on what Corey's saying but man we have got to turn the heat down on these discussions i i mean i think it's about to your point it's about taking people's concerns seriously right i i absolutely do not dismiss that right but it's about making sure that we're being clear and precise about what exactly their concerns are mm -hmm. and how they are linked to 
um, to any given proposal that's on the table, right? You know, if somebody is having quality of life issues with, um, you know, renters next door shining lights and making noise or something like that, that's not a question about about you know fractional zoning density in the city. That's a question about about sort of quality of life enforcement, right? right. So except, like, let's well, do that. in this right. case, there was a zoning issue involved. So okay, well, fair issue. enough, right? But it's an enforcement issue, right? Right. Yeah, and and so okay, let's take enforcement seriously then, right? You know, it's about listening to people, um, and and addressing their concerns in a real and meaningful way, so that those concerns don't get projected onto something that, to me. Um, it's not that it's unrelated, right? But it's it's a more complicated question of, um, you know, making sure that we're making room for people so that we remain the kind of community that we want to remain, right? So I, I think that the question is to how do we, it's a both and, right? How do we take those concerns seriously? And we're making sure we're addressing those concerns, what the real concerns are, um, while at the same time, not stopping ourselves from doing the kinds of things that I think are critically necessary to remain the kind of community that we are, right? Um, this is something I've been talking about is is um, bringing back the the, the um, rental inspection program in the city um, that hasn't been around since, you know, 2007 or 2008. And there are some complications to that, right, um, with state code. Um, in order to do that, um, according to state code, we can only run a rental inspection program in an area of the city that that we either declare blighted or be, being in danger of becoming blighted. And on one level, that's just words. On another level, do we really want city council publicly declaring the city of Fredericksburg to be in danger of becoming blighted so that we then have the legal authority to run a rental inspection program? That, to me, is not an obvious answer, right? I think that there, that is a discussion that we will have to have. Um, but, you know, I think that that is something that we should be thinking about to precisely your point, Marty, right, which is to, to take to take seriously people's concerns. Um, but to go from the renters next to me are causing problems that are um, in hit, that are degrading my quality of life to we should not have any more renters in the city. That strikes me as a leap that is that is not really defensible. Right. Um, and that, that we need to distinguish those two conversations, right? One conversation, how do we ensure quality of life for city and people in the city, you know, ensure that their investments are protected and, and whatnot, versus how do we how do we pursue land use policies that are gonna do the best we can to preserve the community that we all value here. We've got to separate those things out. Yeah, I think also to to the point of well, we discuss housing a lot on this podcast, right? We have a real vested interest in uh, in affordable housing in particular and in creating avenues for folks to live and work, you know, in the places that they love, Fredericksburg included. Um, and I think to Corey's point, you know, especially when you're talking about affordable housing, you know, many of those people who would benefit from affordable housing do not have the the liberty to to leave their kids at home right we're talking about single parents we're talking about people that are working and like finding you know various ways to engage the community you know in a real way i think is really critical and i would venture to say that we would all agree on that i do think when it comes you know to affordable housing um in particular 
to many of the things that were brought up, there's a whole variety of opportunity. It's not just a one fix thing. And I think people oftentimes have the perception that affordable housing is just one thing. But we have a whole regional body that discusses, you know, sustainable solutions and how do we start to engage in uh, conversations around affordable housing, around things like zoning, around things like, um, you know, community land trusts, like, you know, there's, there's so many options. And really, it's, it's up to the community and stakeholders within that citizens included, and certainly including those who would benefit from affordable housing and, and oftentimes cannot participate or engage, not just in meetings, right, but you know, don't have an avenue to engage or don't know how to engage, right? And I think to the, the overarching, you know, conversation about communication, I think council and all, you know, any like governing body, right? It's like an opportunity that should be exciting for folks to, to dip into and find ways to get people at the table who are on the other side of that, right? Who are struggling to pay their rent and who are being priced out of the places that they love, um, not just in Fredericksburg, but really across our region. And there are so many innovative solutions that people can learn about and get involved in. Um, and, you know, to start that conversation is, is really critical. I think, um, you know, I, I have the, I'm lucky in a sense to have just come off a hard-fought campaign in which I went and knocked on hundreds and hundreds of doors around the city over the course of last summer and last fall, right? Um, and so I have talked to a lot of people in Fredericksburg who are people who, to your point, are probably not going to be able to make the time to come to a lot of council meetings over the course of the next four years. But, you know, as someone who just came off a campaign, I went to them and I knocked on their doors and I asked them, you know, what their concerns were for the city of Fredericksburg and what their vision was for the city of Fredericksburg. And I do have to say, right, the, the range of opinion out there in the city on these matters is way broader and more diverse than you would necessarily um, think from from watching a, a, a streaming city council session, right? And and you, to some extent, you only find that out though by by going to them, by knocking on their doors. And you know, luckily, I, I just came off that experience um, in, in a very intense way. Um, but I think part of it is just going to them, right? Do you well, anticipate that that you'll continue that work now that you're on council in ways to engage? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the door knocking is, is a lot of work, right? So that, and I have small kids, and that was incredibly uh, taxing on me and my family, right, to, to dedicate those kinds of uh, weekend hours to that, right? So, so can I promise that I'm going to spend the next four years knocking doors in the neighborhood every weekend? No, right? That's not a realistic um, expectation. But, sure, but, but in- to the extent that I can, right, get out into venues like this, right, get out into venues of the community and be talking to people about, about stuff that's uh, coming down the pike, for sure. Well, yeah. it's also part of ideas like, you know, moving council i mean getting council members you you don't have to go knock on 100 doors right but you can go to a local neighborhood association on a saturday morning and host coffee and bring people in and give them a chance to really hear you right that's uh that's that's two hours out of your day where it would take you uh, imagine a couple days to knock on that number of doors to hear from people right so there are ways so again that is a self-selecting crowd right uh, look you're always going to have self-selecting crowds but the question is the more you know do you provide enough opportunity for people who want to select in to select it. Sure. That's the operative question. Absolutely. Um, I guess sort of the last question I have for you, Will, is, you know, 
bringing new housing in, bringing in the two over twos, bringing in this, that, and the other, right? Uh, see, I'm, I'm already picking up. On yeah, that there you crazy go. Crazy <laughs> Two over two. It makes me sound smarter. You're a zoning expert now. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> right. As we are all. Are. Uh, yeah, we're all experts, right? Uh, the, the favorite word in Washington D.C. for the first time someone came to me and said, "You're an education expert." No. <laughs> no, no. You are. Uh, yeah. Okay. Sure. Fun. Whatever. What if, if you say so? Uh, I met more 22 year old experts than I care to. <laughs> Lord, I'm an expert. Yeah. No, I, t- I teach them yeah I was like, no you're not um but um but you know so look you know i, I get the point about the fractional zoning and and you know and, and creating more opportunities without necessarily creating more people per se you're right you're changing the opportunities for them to live i, I get that but it's also true that if everything is rental based you're not creating an avenue for these people to ultimately own their own homes. Oh, 100%, right? But the sol- and that's that's a problem. And the solution to that, I think, is the same as the solution to the rental problem, which is, honestly, it, it's supply, right? Um, it is having... And if you might, I, I want to talk for a little bit about um, how I understand the empirical relationship between supply and affordability, right? Um, because this is something that I have heard from a lot of people. It's something that I've read, unfortunately, in the, in the pages of the advance, right? That people denying that there's any kind of connection between density and affordability. And we have a couple of good examples that that's not true. By the way, we have a, a number of opinion columns going to come up against that. Okay, okay, good. I'd we, like to hear that. I, yeah. I do want to say that, you know, we... We open our pages to people who want to make good arguments. I appreciate that. That's what we will do. Well, I I hope to bring some some empirical evidence to this discussion instead of assertion, right? Um, I think the the best example is uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota, which in 2018 passed a series of zoning packet reforms. Um, that that loosened up supply and allowed for density in all different kinds of ways around the city that went into place in 2020. And in 2022, so in other words, about the average lag time between those permits that were being put in on those new pop properties in 2020 um, and them coming online in 2022, rents and cost of living in Minneapolis stabilized and began to go down. Right, um, And it is incredibly remarkable to see Minneapolis compared to pure cities, like other big Midwestern cities. Um, we have a great natural experiment because experiment, St. Paul next door didn't do this, right? Those are two cities that literally touch each other. And you can see the trend lines diverging in Minneapolis and St. Paul. Um, and so basically, and, and you know, this is don't trust me, this is trust the Cato Institute who was doing the study, right? That, that, uh, that passing these reforms that opened up supply and allowed for specific kinds of targeted density in the city of Minneapolis have been the cost curves, they've stabilized cost of living in Minneapolis. And Minneapolis had the lowest inflation rate of any major metro area in the country. I'm talking about overall inflation rate because their housing costs subsidized, right? Inflation is running right about 1% right now in metro Minneapolis as opposed to sort of 3% nationally, right? And it's all because of this stabilization in housing prices. Um, if, if we have time, if you can indulge me one more example. Sure, one more. One more example. Um, Berkeley, California. Um, a city that um, didn't build a lot of housing between the 90s and about the last 10 years. I lived in Berkeley in the 90s. <laughs> so you know how this is, right? There is this weird fluke of the history of Berkeley's housing law where they used to have a rental rent control program and then it went away. Um, but basically all properties built before 1980 are in this database, uh, rent control database. Um, 
And then beginning in sort of 2012, but especially in 2017, there were some liberalizations and there was a bunch of lawsuits and the, the housing politics of California are incredibly messy. But basically beginning in about 2017, Bil- Berkeley began building again and began building big buildings sort of downtown and along their transit corridors. Um, and we have this great natural experiment where we can see overall costs of rent in Berkeley. And we can also see sp- especially separately the costs of rent in older buildings in Berkeley and buildings built before 1980 because of this weird, archaic, old um, rent control database that they have. And what we see is that um, it precisely what I talked about a moment ago, right, which is that rent in the older buildings in the pre-1980 buildings um, stabilizes. The new buildings are still expensive, right, because they're new and they're downtown and they're fancy, right? But what you see with all these new buildings coming in, kind of soaking up that upper end of the market, is that um, in the older buildings, rent had been going up very steeply and then they stabilize, right, um, after after 2017, 2018, when those new buildings come online. Um, And so I think that that is, again, one of these incredible natural experiments that that demonstrate precisely what I was talking about a moment ago. So, you know, to sort of to say that there's no link between density and affordability, right, um, that is absolutely belied by the by the empirical experience of other cities that have undertaken reforms of the kind that that the council has been talking about. Right. But that's also true that, right, I mean, Fredericksburg is not Minneapolis, Minnesota. For sure. Uh, and what they did not, not is, not, shot. is not going to be right for us. Right. But to deny the link between those two things, I'm saying, doesn't, doesn't comport with uh, empirical experience. I yeah, I think it's an example that housing is really the key, you know, in so many ways to people's ability to have prosperity, you know. I mean, the reality is we have to build. Right? I, mean, I mean, I've said this before on the show, right? We're 40 years behind it. You're going to have to build. The question becomes how and where and, and how you manage that without destroying what you have and that and that's an ongoing discussion yeah we're not the only historic town that's dealing with this being a a part of main street and being connected to other main streets this is the same exact conversation conversations that's happening across the country i just feel like main street as an organization was kind of ahead of it because we were but we're kind of like coming to a head right now like in our city but they were talking about this like three years ago and there are other organizations that were talking out way before they realized what was going on um so we we have a lot of work to do and there are there are some opportunities there there are other main there are other historic districts that have figured some things out there are opportunities so i know it seems i know it seems grim you know, it seems I know for some people who are kind of outside looking in, like there are some things that we can do. We just got to figure out what is going to be best for us. And we just all got to kind of plug into it and do what we can to be a part of the conversation and collaborate. Right. And I think, again, you know, getting back to because we do have to kind of close this out. We're running long here, which has been a great conversation. Uh, Will, I've really enjoyed it. But, I, you know, I, we do have to kind of wrap this up. And, I, you know, I would say that. um you know, on the back end, to, to me, it gets back to that communication piece you were just talking about, right? And um, that was at the gist of the column that I wrote on Friday, right? The communication just was not there. And um, I was heartened to hear two members of council concede that. And maybe we can start to work on that some. I think that was a, a very encouraging thing to, to hear happen. And I think it's the only way we're going to begin to lower the temperature and kind of close this rift that has been opened up. Uh, so I'm excited about that. Looking forward to that. Look forward to seeing where you folks go with this. Um, but you're right. It's, this is a tough conversation. Um, no one's ever going to be 100% happy with this one. And, and we're going to have to kind of keep working, keep moving. Uh, I would love to keep talking with, but we really have. <laughs> sure. Corey, Corey's over here flashing numbers at me. <laughs> um, uh, 
and rightfully so. So that brings us to the last thing of the night um, with, with a real hardball question. I mean, density in housing. That's <laughs> the real hardball question of the night. Will McIntosh, what are you reading? Um, well, unfortunately, it's just continuing the same conversation because I'm teaching a, a U.S. urban history course this semester. Um, and I should say, when I'm when I'm in my semester, I don't tend to read a lot for pleasure, right? And my reading tends to be focused on 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 what I'm teaching. So I've been reading. I've had the chance to be you know be reading a lot of really cool um, uh, sort of new urban histories, right? Um, I just finished teaching one, discussing one with my students um, called Daniel Johnson, Making the Early Modern Metropolis about colonial Philadelphia and thinking about how um, sort of like uh, colonial cities were shaped by, in some cases, very distant medieval precedents um, coming into sort of confrontation with 18th century modernity in the colonial world. Really interesting thing. been working working my way through Ariana Liazzo's book called Reforming the City, which is a history of sort of urban reform movements in the late 19th and the early 20th century, sort of in the progressive era, um, and thinking about how reformers came to think of the city as as a target for reform, right? Um, and then next week, uh, my students and I are about to, to discuss uh, a book that is, uh, I've read a lot of times, um, and it's a real, real classic. It's older, it's from the 90s, and it's a, a book by William Cronin called Nature's Metropolis and it's a history of Chicago in the 19th century, um, and looking at the ways in which um, sort of uh, uh, ecological systems and and commodity flows um, ended up producing a city and the particular producing a city with the, with the particular characteristics of Chicago in the 19th century. So it's all on these themes <laughs> yeah. this semester for me. Yeah. yeah. Stick a knife in my heart, Will. I'm over here You're talking about a, an old classic book from the 1990s. When I, was, <laughs> when I was ending my academic career and beginning my journalistic career, thanks a lot for making me feel about 8,000 years old. Corey, you going to make me feel a little better tonight? Uh, I don't really have any good book updates right now. I'm still, I'm trying, I'm done messing around with some other things, so I'm back into my uh, 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 The Squad book by Ryan Grimm. Um, if anyone's not familiar with him, amazing journalist, just like the journalists that are present, uh, but definitely amazing journalist. He's the DC Bureau Chief for The Intercept, and I always enjoy his takes on so many different things, uh, but uh, um, but the this book is pretty long and it's very dense history, I guess recent history on kind of the current progressive movement in the Democratic Party, kind of starting with AOC going through kind of like the current situation that is now, you know, the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. So really cool book. Um, so I'm just trying to get get it done. It's super long, but I'm loving it. <laughs> cool. I'm feeling a little bit better. Megan, how about you? Um, So I have been kind of living in this perpetual state of wanderlust lately. (laughs) And for some folks might know, but Corey and I both have motorcycles and we do long distance motorcycling. And so those types of stories have always been really uh, captivating for me um, from, you know, the time that I was uh, adolescent. And so one of the books um, that I found you know it's been a number of years now but it's called to shake the sleeping self um, and it's by a writer named Jedediah Jenkins and he took his bicycle from Oregon to Patagonia in Chile and back and so those types of stories have always really represented just that 
feeling that I have, like that kind of call to travel. We took our motorcycles across the country in 2022 and are hoping to do it again this year. And so in my non-housing time, (laughs) I also tend to read a lot that's related to like a lot of the discussion topics that we talk about here on the, uh, on the podcast. But, um, I do, um, enjoy reading other people's stories of being able to, to, you know, really embrace that type of freedom that comes from from that type of travel. So it's it's a fantastic book. Um, he's a wonderful writer, and he uh, it's been a number of years now since he's been on the trip. But he cataloged it also in photo journaling through social media. He uses Instagram and and kind of compiled all of those stories over time and and put it into a book. So I highly recommend it. It's a great one. How about you, Marty? What are you reading? So I'm finishing up Jonathan Eag's biography of. Uh, Martin Luther King, which is absolutely extraordinary. Um, uh, I'm not a historian of King, but I have read a lot. Uh, And I've spent a lot of time in Atlanta and um, have interviewed um, surviving members of the King family and and work with the historians who uh, are involved in the site. So it's, it's again, I'm not an expert in it, but um, it's it's something I'm, I'm close to. And uh, it's just an extraordinary biography. I'm jealous. I wish I'd written it. Um, but I'll be actually be doing a, a review of it for the advance next weekend. Uh, so look for that. Um, and then I am uh, rereading uh, the, a book of poems by Fred Chappell uh, called Rivers, which I have read hundreds of times. And uh, I'm, I'm rereading. We named, our, we named our youngest son, our Marine, uh, after Fred Chappell. His last name, Austin's middle name is Chappell. And so... Um, uh, you know, we're we're dealing with some things as a family, and so I'm I'm rereading Rivers, and it's it's helping. Um, so with that, we wrap up another edition of the Dominion Podcast. Will, thanks so much for taking time tonight and coming out and sharing with us and talking. It's been a marvelous conversation. I hope we can start them anymore. Yeah, me too. Thanks, and and like I said, I you know I really see my see my role in the city as someone who who talks and listens and and serves as a translator between the the wonks and the public. And so this is a, a great venue for that. So I really appreciate you having me here. Well, we, yeah, we very much appreciate it as well. Absolutely. Corey and Megan, um, look, nothing better than spending Thursday nights or occasionally on Wednesday nights uh, with the two of you. It's the highlight of my week. Uh, My students can always tell uh, in in my last class of the day, I got a little more perk in my step. And they're like, Mr. Davis, why have you got more perking? I'm, like, I'm going to go see Sean and Corey and Megan tonight, and you just don't know how much fun that is. Sean, we <laughs> hope you get well soon. Uh, Megan did a tremendous job filling in for you, but no, she, we're not going to replace you with her. I won't uh, steal your job, but you, you do owe us two books next week. <laughs> you do owe us two books, and uh, and um, and your voice was definitely missed tonight. We wish you could have been here. Uh, perhaps the next time we have Will back in, you'll be able to be here. Um, so to everyone who's been listening um, to the Need to Bingham podcast, thank you so much for your time we look forward to talking to you next week until then be well do great work and we will see you soon